Amen. Well, before we get into the Bible study, it's Memorial Day, the day when we remember those who have given their lives so that we could have the freedom to do what we do. And to give us a little perspective on that, uh, Roger's going to come and share with us a few thoughts on Memorial Day. Thank you, Pastor Dave, for allowing me some time to talk about a day that has great meaning to our nation's history, Memorial Day, which is tomorrow, the 30th. But this sacred day of remembrance did not start out with this name. Going back in history a little bit, prior to the Civil War, there were no official military cemeteries in America, and those who died by whatever cause were laid to rest in local church cemeteries. Such was the tradition of a nation of small towns. But the Civil War changed all that. Battlefield situations were so fluid and changing rapidly that by necessity, fallen warriors were buried right where they fell, with homemade crosses or pieces of tree bark or a stone crudely marked with a name and a date and perhaps a unit. The guns finally fell silent in 1865. By 1866, a year after General Lee surrendered to General Grant, time had taken its toll on the graves of those killed during those five devastating years of war. In a display of compassion, some women and children in Mississippi and Georgia went out to local battlefields and cleared the weeds off these makeshift graves of both Union and Confederate soldiers and decorated them with flowers. General John Logan, commander of the Grand Army of the Republic, a Union veteran organization, got wind of that. So he issued an order designating May 30th, 1868 as Decoration Day. And that was a day to remember and honor Union soldiers who gave their lives in the Civil War. By World War I, uh, which was a very bad experience for our nation, it became evident that we should remember the lives of all Americans who died in all of our wars. So that became a day to remember. In 1967... Its name was changed to Memorial Day, and by 1971, the day was moved to the last Monday in May. Well, the passage of time and the busyness of life has a way of dimming our memories of the past, and over the years, the true meaning of Memorial Day has faded from the national consciousness. When Memorial Day became linked to a long weekend, it became easier to look upon the true meaning beyond that, to a time off from work, picnics, barbecues, and baseball games. And those are important things to do with family. But we must remember those who marched off to war and did not return. So I believe that those who answered America's calls to war throughout our history was a part of God's plan, a blessing that allows us to worship him without the fear of imprisonment and death that pervades much of the world today. In his speech at Gettysburg, President Lincoln honored the brave soldiers who gave that last full measure of devotion. I'm wearing my uniform in memory of all those who gave that last full measure of devotion on battlefields far away, who died alone but for God and their comrades. So who do we remember on this special day? Since the Revolutionary War, over 44 million men and women have served in our military, and of that number, 1.3 million died in service for the just cause of freedom for which our nation has stood as a shining beacon for 247 years. If we fail to keep their memory alive, who will remember their sacrifice, their devotion, and their honor? Will one day their example of courage and selfless sacrifice lay forgotten beneath stone monuments, their only legacy that we can have a day off? Well, I pray that never happens. For if we forget, then we may just as easily forget that freedom isn't free. President uh, Jefferson once wrote, Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Well, I thank God every day that he provided, over time, so many common citizens of uncommon valor who willingly left behind family in the comforts of home to demonstrate their belief that America was worth defending with their lives. So how can you honor our fallen heroes? You can attend a Memorial Day ceremony. Many of them start at 11 o'clock. You can check online or newspapers for time. Or if you can't do that, 
or you could possibly do both, you can join in with the National Moment of Remembrance. Congress established this one-minute period at 3 o'clock local time for silent, respectful reflection and remembrance. It's a mid-afternoon reminder when many of us would be in the middle of enjoying the afternoon with family and friends. And through your participation, you'll be doing your part to reclaim this hallowed day for the noble and sacred purpose for which it was intended, to honor those who died in service to our nation. So tomorrow, I hope you take time to remember our fallen heroes, men and women alike, Give them the respect and the honor that they deserve. Thank you, and God bless America. Thanks, Roger. Well, now let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We're going through this Gospel of Matthew, and there's so much powerful truth that Matthew presents for us as he tells the story of Jesus. If you were with us last week, in Matthew 15, we saw the contrast between the weak and wimpy Pharisees and who would always run away with their feelings hurt, contrasted with, in this case, a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician woman, who wouldn't take no for an answer. She was just a a tough girl who, when... She wasn't hearing the answer she wanted. She just kept coming. Jesus was preparing the disciples to follow that example rather than the example that they had in the synagogue because he knew what was coming next and he knew what it would take to survive life. Now, in chapter 16, we see him bring a focus even more on the importance of this contrast and of this lesson. So let's dive right into Matthew chapter 16. It starts out with the Pharisees and Sadducees who they didn't agree on hardly anything, but they got together to go after Jesus because he was a threat to both of them. And it says they came and tested him, asking that he would show them a sign from heaven. These guys just wanted to see magic happen. They had seen Jesus do other things, but now they're asking for something to actually come from heaven. Come on, let's see something really impressive that a magician can't imitate. So they were baiting him, hoping to get him to do what they wanted him to do, and all they wanted was a great trick. Now, Jesus kind of, if you read through it, I'm not going to read all of it, but he said, you guys are unbelievable. You can kind of look at the sky and guess at what the weather's going to be like tomorrow, but you can't look at humanity and know what's coming. He said, I'll give you a sign. The only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. He had earlier in chapter 12, he had compared his resurrection to Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. He said, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the center of the earth. So he said, that's the only sign I'm going to give you. And so then they left, and as they were walking, he warned the disciples in chapter 6, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He goes, I don't want you to be like them. I want you to be aware of where they are going wrong. Now the disciples at this point They heard leaven, and they're like, leaven, what's he talking about? Bread? Oh, man, we forgot to bring the lunch. Well, and a part of them may have thought, if we don't bring it, he'll provide it. I mean, we saw him with 5,000 men and a bunch of women and children miraculously provide five loaves, two fishes, and all that food. Then we saw recently with 4,000 men, with women and children, seven loaves, two fish. He did. So maybe they just thought, we don't need to bring lunch anymore. So when he says, beware of the leaven, they're like, oh, shoot, <laughs> we're in trouble. He's mad because we didn't bring bread. And Jesus goes, I'm not talking about bread. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. O you of little faith, verse 8, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? 
Do you not yet understand or remember the five loves and how many baskets, the seven loves, how many baskets? How is it you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? So they go, okay, he's talking about their teachings. So they messed up somehow, so we shouldn't do it as well. But then he transitions into bringing up this amazing question to them that he says, well, in, in uh, verse 13, he said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? What, an, what a conversation starter. So, guys, in the context of what's just happened, what do you think people think about me? Who do they think I am? Tell me what they say. What's the word on the street? And so they said, well, you know, some people say you're John the Baptist. Kind of stupid since they were about the same age, but, you know, that people say dumb things. Uh, some say you're Elijah. That's a little more plausible, maybe. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It's not that they believed in reincarnation. They believed that somehow there's something powerful about a historical person that could inspire and, and uh, drive you. So they said, lots of opinions. So Jesus said, okay, those aren't bad. Yeah, I'm not offended by any of those. But he said in verse 15, who do you say that I am? Whoa, that's a huge question. It's a question that Jesus continues to ask every one of us today. Your life will go one direction or the other based on how you answer that question, who is Jesus? You can think he was an inspirational historical figure. You can believe he's a mythological character. You can believe he was whatever you want. But you have to answer the question. Because what you believe about who Jesus is determines everything else that happens after that. And so he asked them, and naturally Peter, he always was popping up with an answer. He jumped on it, and he totally nailed it. You know how... You know how when people say something, it's like, wow, you really understood it. And, and so he says, he says, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, man, you totally nailed the answer, Peter. Great job. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Simon was his Hebrew name. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter. The word, that was his Greek name, Petros. It means a rock. And he said, and on this rock, Petra. Now, Petros, rock, means, um, it just means rock. It's the masculine word for rock. Petra is the female, the feminine form of the noun Petros. So if it was a female rock, you know, he's saying, your name is Rocky, but upon this, you know, rocket, <laughs> I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, Jesus isn't specifically talking about the church as we know it. It didn't exist yet. And so when you, like, when people say that Peter was the head of the church, now, the word, he uses the word church, to them it just meant my group, my people, my assembly, those who are called out, which ultimately the church would fulfill that, but they weren't thinking when, when he said, you know, I'll build my church, they were like, oh, good, we're going to build the church. No, that's, that's not what they were thinking. But he said, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Um, they were in, it says there in verse 13, that they were in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is an amazing place. Whenever we go to Israel, we make sure we go there. It's one of the most beautiful locations in Israel. It's shady. People go there for picnics. There's a waterfall that goes into these streams, and, and it's, just, it's just a beautiful place. And it's also called Panyas or Banyas, depending on the time in history. But there's this huge rock wall that's there that the water flows forth from. 
And the rock wall was one of the major places where they would sacrifice to pagan gods. And so to this day, all over that rock wall, there are these cut out little indentations where they would put idols and people put candles and stuff in them even today. And that was like their place of worship. They thought that that's the place where, you know, you go and, and it connects you to the afterlife and all that kind of stuff. So really silly superstition. But he's there and he's talking. You, you can't avoid the imagery that he's saying, Peter, upon this Petra, this sheer cliff, I'm going to build my group of people and, and the gates of hell, which some people have said, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but it makes sense that these little indentations were called the gates of hell, that it won't prevail against it. Basically he's saying, what you have pronounced as to my identity, the future is going to hang on that awareness. Peter's feeling pretty good at this point. And then Jesus goes even further. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's not saying this specifically to Peter. He's talking about people who understand who I am. You will have the keys to the kingdom. That's not some power like the the papacy. It's not like, you, Peter, you're going to be the pope because of this. Because in a few verses, he ends up calling the pope Satan. So that wouldn't be appropriate. But he goes, no, when you understand who I am, that's the key to the future. You will be able to make a difference in people's lives. And you can set them free to find life of forgiveness and grace and love. Or... If you don't do that, they will continue to be bound. So he's saying basically the access to God comes through an understanding of who I am, of my identity. And so I'm not sure what they understood. Years later, they understood it. And by the way, years later, Peter would not be going, I'm the rock that he built the church on. You know, I'm the, I'm the first pope. Because Peter, in in his letters, talks about Jesus being the foundation, being the cornerstone, that everything is built on Jesus. So Peter certainly didn't understand it as being, okay, you are the key piece. But in case he did start thinking that way, it got fixed pretty quickly. Because right after that, he told the disciples, don't tell anybody that I'm Jesus the Christ. Um, It's interesting. Jesus was never interested in promoting himself. He was never like, here we are in this beautiful place and, you know, the big cliff. Okay, everybody gather around. Let's get a selfie. Let's, you know, this is the day that Peter got it right. Peter finally nailed one, you know. And so, no, he's just like, you know what, keep this to yourself. Jesus understood that publicity was not what was going to save the world, in fact, if you think about it, the, main, the most amazing miracles that he had done, when he, he fed maybe close to 20,000 people from five loaves and two fish, when he fed you know, 12,000 people or so with seven loaves and a few fish, where are all those people? What happened to these guys? When you attract people with appealing to their selfish desires... That doesn't change the world. That isn't going to change the world. And Jesus makes it really clear as he continues here. But he goes, look, I'm not doing this to get on TV. I'm not doing this to get famous. I'm not doing this because you got to tell everybody about it. I've got something else going on here. And besides that, Jesus is slowing them down because he understood that they didn't even understand the implications of everything that they were learning in the process of this time with him. So after telling him, you look, don't tell anybody, then he began to show in verse 21 to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised from the dead. He's like, okay, next on the agenda is this. I'm going to Jerusalem. 
And they're like, oh, man, that's dangerous. I know. In fact, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to be killed. Can you handle that? And they're like, no, no. They didn't want to hear that. They hardly even noticed that he said Auntie would raise from the dead because they just didn't want him to suffer. They're like, you're in your early 30s. Think about all the good that you can do by us going and telling everybody that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, getting the message out about you. But he said, I'm going to go die, and that's a part of this message as well. And so as he says this, Peter, you know, spoke up again. He's like, well, you know, I just heard from God just a few minutes ago. Now God says this. That's not going to happen to you. Far be it, verse 22, from you, Lord, that this shall, this shall not happen to you. Peter's like, no. Jesus, you're right about me being the first pope, but you're wrong about this. You're not going to die. No way. I'm not gonna. And you see this even to the time when, Peter, when Jesus was taken in the garden that Peter pulls out a sword and tries to protect him. He wasn't ready to handle that part of the truth. And it becomes clear as you follow Peter. So he says, nope, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Remember me? I hear from God. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to me. I'm telling you, No. Jesus turned and said to Peter in verse 23, get behind me, Satan. Satan? I'm the guy that flesh and blood didn't reveal this to me. He's like, you know what? It's amazing how quick your story can change. You spoke for God, and now you're speaking for the devil. We always act like that's really shocking, like that somebody could have God working in their life and have the devil working in their life. But if you don't understand that that can happen, you don't understand anything. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You are only thinking about what's good for us. You're not thinking about what God may want to do. And then Jesus launches in verse 24 into something that is so central to understanding what it is to be a Christian that we, we have to look at this passage and go, this is something we desperately need to learn. It's important. In fact, as he says, your very soul is at stake. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life, and the word there, suke, or soul, you want to save your soul, you'll lose it. But whoever allows his soul to be lost for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The suke, the core of who you are, who you are in your essence, who you are if you are completely fulfilled and you've become the person that you were designed to be. Your soul, that depth of your being, your mind, your will, your emotion, who you are. If you take away every flaw and every failure and everything else, it's like, who are you at your core? There are people who sometimes don't even care who their soul really makes them. They're just trying to get by. They're just trying to be comfortable. But Jesus' warning here is something that should mean a lot to us. Because we will sacrifice our soul if we don't understand what he is saying about taking up our cross. Now we know that Jesus was heading for the cross. But so often... We talk like, Jesus went to the cross so you don't have to. He suffered so you don't have to. That's not what he said. He said, your soul is at stake. You need to be taking up your cross. And In Luke's gospel, he adds in daily. This is something that you need to do habitually. Embrace and welcome and be willing to face difficulty and pain and struggles. Because if you don't get that, you will lose 
the essence of who you are. You will lose your soul. You'll never be who you could be if you don't learn this lesson. And then he goes on and says that, you know, the Son of Man's going to come in his glory and reward everyone and everyone will be fine. And then in verse 28, it really belongs with the next chapter. So we'll probably start there next Sunday as we go into chapter 17 because verse 28 of chapter 16 is the introduction to what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. So here you have chapter 16. After in chapter 15, Jesus letting them know this tough little woman is a lot more like what you need to be to survive than these wimpy Pharisees that are whimpering because somebody's breaking some of their rules. But now, in chapter 16, it gets real. Because now he says, now, first of all, the chapter starts out, you know, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they want magic. They want, not Magic Johnson, they want to see magic tricks. And in a sense, the disciples probably did too. A part of them, like, did he say bread? Mmm, yeah, good, I missed that. He kind of shoots them down on that notion. But the truth is, I mean, there are some people who follow God because they want to see miracles. You'd be really disappointed. Because even though God can do miracles, and every once in a while he has a, you know, he is driven to perform a miracle, he mostly doesn't. He, there are times in biblical history where it'll go a thousand years without one miracle even being recorded. Because God's not your hired entertainment. He is not a magician. When he does magic, it almost always backfires. So you want to look to him and say, you're the one that does the tricks. You're the one that does the signs and wonders. Well, then you better explain why most of the time he doesn't. Why life isn't that way. The truth is, it isn't. And so to start with this orientation of wanting to see the miraculous setting you up for failure as he makes it clear in the progression of this passage. So the thing is, nope, that's not how I'm doing it. I'm doing life in the way that life happens. But then you have to ask yourself, Peter's an amazing guy who he ended up whatever lessons he ultimately needed to learn after he denied knowing Jesus and everything else ultimately he was the guy that got the call to be the first preacher when the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2 so Peter's Peter learned and when you read his epistles you realize how much he learned but at this point he didn't get it he didn't understand how can you go from being the Pope flesh and blood did not reveal this to you into Hey, Satan, how does that happen so quickly? And when we talk about often, you know, God has an agenda and Satan has an agenda. It's like God is this loving, gentle person who would never hurt a soul. And Satan is like a really Mick Jagger on a bad day, you know. And it's like, you don't understand, when it comes to Satan, the devil, he's very real. But he's also incredibly subtle, you don't see him coming. He comes as an angel of light. He isn't like breathing fire from his nose. He's actually, and when it comes down to Satan, he actually has mostly pretty decent theology. He knows about God. He wouldn't argue with the fact that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Satan would go, right on. That's Jesus, all right. I mean, he... The, the theology that Satan expresses throughout the scriptures is better than almost any TV evangelist that you'll see. He knows theology, but what's the difference? What's the problem? He very subtly diverts us from that which will hurt to a simple, quick, bypass, shortcut, easy way out. And that's what he did from Genesis 3 with Eve. It's what he did in his temptation of Jesus. It's like he's the ultimate salesman of saying, look, we always, we all want the right things. We all want the same things. I totally, I care about you. But why don't you help? I want to help you help me. And we all win. That's the devil. He's this amazing salesman who can make the make turning away from what God has for you look like 
It's a win-win. Everybody wins. This is great. This is awesome. He, the devil almost always comes across as a nice guy who means well. But what happens ultimately is he says, I'm not going to argue with you about what you believe. Let's just talk about strategy. Let's just talk about what the best way for you to do what you need to do is. And you'll find in life, as well as in scripture, you can hear the voice of God and you can hear the voice of the devil right there, following up. It's what he does. He kind of interprets God and makes it more of a user-friendly kind of application of what God is. They don't sound that different. And so the same Peter, who's, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Oh, no, you're not going to die. Sounds like the same guy, because the differences are that subtle. And Jesus needed them to understand this. And so he says, I will give you a perfect litmus test. It's called the cross. You will know that if you are making decisions in order to avoid pain, you are setting yourself up to follow after the agenda of the ultimate shortcut artist, the devil. But you will be so wrong if you live your life to avoid pain. It's one thing for Jesus to say, I have to go to the cross. And you hear people say this all the time. Jesus went to the cross so you don't have to. That's not what he said. He said, I'm going to the cross and you have a cross also. Remember Peter, who after Jesus rose from the dead, he's kind of awkward. Yeah, you know, where I said I didn't know you. Sorry about that. And Jesus is going, do you really love me? And they had that conversation. And then Jesus said to Peter, someday they're going to carry you where you don't want to go. Your arms are going to be outstretched. And it says that he said it about the fact that Peter would one day be crucified as well. But they all weren't crucified. But the truth is, they all had a cross to bear, and so do we. And until we understand that the pathway to what God has for us, God's best for us, the truth, it's always going to head down a road that involves pain and discomfort. And, you know, you might go, why? Your soul is at stake as to whether or not you understand this truth. Now, part of why God does this is it makes us resilient. Like the Syrophoenician woman, she'd been through a lot of tough stuff. It made her tough. The Pharisees, they had never been through anything tough. They were a bunch of crybabies. They were all offended. But what happens when you become so vulnerable because you are so protected and you live your life avoiding pain at every opportunity, does that make you stronger? Absolutely not. It makes you weaker. It's, we see this in our society today. We used to, you go back generations, people believed that a part of life is learning to get knocked around and toughened up and prepared because if you deal with the immediate pain, it'll help you later to deal with inevitable pain that was going to follow you. That's what we used to think was, that's what you do to raise a new generation. Pharisees weren't that way. They were like super sensitive. Now, these idiots that, that go in and do these horrible acts of shooting children and things like that, every time, every time, you will hear about them, well, we need to understand, they were bullied. People said horrible things to them. What? That's, this is our society, that somehow, if people say something hurtful to you, that it makes sense for you to then, you know, destroy people's lives. That's the Pharisees. What did they hate about Jesus? Jesus never laid a hand on them. He didn't try to kick them out of office. He didn't go out and crusade against them. Jesus said offensive things to them, and they couldn't take it. And so what does a baby do? They go crying in the corner, and they come out with some act of vengeance. And what they did to him is exactly what people do today who aren't taught that life hurts. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes you're going to get knocked around. 
And if you have kids or, or grandkids or you have anyone that you could put influence into their lives, it's not that hard to teach them the simple, powerful truth. Now, somebody says something against you, six words, I don't care what you think. That's it. It's that simple. If you can learn to not get your feelings hurt by what people think, you will be more resilient. And Jesus knew these disciples were going to have to face some cruel treatment and saying some horrible things. They threatened them and put them into prison just a few weeks later. And what did Peter say? Sorry. I appreciate your opinion, but I obey God rather than men. That's tough. But that's the kind of you know, pain that you have to be willing to suffer in order to not become a complete victim of everything that somebody can hurt you with mere words. I'm not saying that words don't hurt. I'm saying a part of growing up is getting to the point where you don't let the hurt of somebody's words start to define you. You do that, part of your soul is being lost. Now, what Jesus was helping the disciples understand is you need to be tough now because it's not going to get any easier. It's going to hurt. Every day you will have a cross. Every day there's something that you will have to put up with, and I want you to endure. And the only way you're going to do that is if you not act like religious legalists that are, your, your feelings are crushed every time you hear somebody say a bad word. When you're like, you're tougher than that because you've learned. Now, what our society does today, and I believe that our society to a huge degree is, is driven by the devil And I think that most of the people who are involved actually mean well. You might think that all these crazy politicians and stuff that, oh, they just want to destroy the society. Not necessarily. They're just stupid. They they think that if they coddle people enough that we can make a more beautiful world. But what does the world do? It gives us, you know, shortcuts all along the way. So, I mean, if you're feeling bad... There must be a pill you can take that's going to make you not feel bad. There. Does that make you better or does that make you worse? I'm not against medication for any reason. There are times when, but at the same time, like my back got messed up from playing soccer with my grandkids. And I, I know if I went to the doctor, they would just give me a pain medication. It wouldn't feel so bad. But I also know if I start being careful with my back and I'm wearing a brace a lot of the time and I'm icing it, it's a good reminder. Like when we went to the park yesterday, I didn't play soccer. You know, it's like I learn. I get in my head. I actually, even though it hurts, I'll always remember that time. I'll always remember the fun of playing with my grandkids because every once in a while I'll have this souvenir that tells me, remember that? You were an old man and you forgot you were old for a few minutes. You know what? It can toughen you up. It can be a good thing. What does it do if you... How about people that just abuse alcohol? Because it's like, man, life is boring, it's horrible, so a few drinks and all of a sudden I look better. I have a few drinks, I'm funnier. Everyone else looks better too. This is awesome. Well, is that really the way to live? By drugging yourself and fooling yourself and taking away some of the immediate discomfort, but at the same time, somehow selling a part of your soul, somehow becoming somebody who you aren't, we all face that choice every day. Jesus looks at us and he says, are you willing to put up with, to deny yourself, and not go for the easy escape, not spend 12 hours a day watching TV, because it's like it helps me escape my, the real life. Or, you know, not doing whatever your escape happens to be, just sleeping all the time or whatever. Instead, how about realizing the best way that I can be me is to avoid those shortcuts and to live for real and to accept whatever pain is there and to continue to move forward. With our society so bent on protecting us from the consequences of life and keeping us as much pain-free as we can possibly be, um, 
one of the things that we trade away is actually one of our most important assets as a human being. You know, if you want to say how are, how are humans different than all of the animals in the animal kingdom, one of the things that humans do that animals don't do is humans always think they're right. Animals don't think they're right or wrong. They don't even think about it. They don't sit there and worry about, you know, oh, this is my opinion. They do what they can do, and whether they're right or wrong, it's not even a concept. Now, humans are endowed with the ability to be convinced that we are right, but the real asset is that we also have the capacity to understand that we are wrong and to change our perspective. Now, in a society where we coddle people, you see that capacity being lost. You see people who are losing all of the ability to ever change their mind. God help you if you ever get to the point where it's like, I don't change my mind anymore. I know what I believe about everything, and that's where it's going to stay. That's what a lot of our society does. They don't want to admit that they might be wrong. And that comes because it might hurt to be wrong. It might hurt for me to admit, you know, I used to think this, but now I think this. And yet that's one of the greatest gifts that we have as humans is the capacity to learn. Now, a dog can learn certain tricks. It doesn't change their perspective. They just say what they need to say, do what they need to do in order to get what they want out of you. Humans have the ability to actually grow. And that is something that is a direct reflection of your soul, of who you truly are, your suke at the depths of it. And when we inoculate ourselves, when we anesthetize ourselves from everything that hurts, we become more and more like, I just think what I think. I listen to people who disagree with me. I listen to Democrats or I listen to Republicans. And I disagree with them on everything that they say. That's a warning sign that you are becoming less human. That's a warning sign that you're becoming more like your dog, which may be a good thing in some ways. But but in reality, only when you realize that every truth is subtle, that every opportunity every day is a chance to grow and to learn and to consider a different perspective... And guess what? Your soul is getting isolated. You're becoming actually less a part of yourself. It's one of the reasons why I heard somebody years ago say, you should never write a book until you're at least 60. Because if you write a book when you're young, you'll change your mind, but now you have to defend your old ideas because it's out there in a book. I mean, I think of that that guy that wrote the book about dating, you know, kiss dating goodbye. And like now he's like, doesn't even believe in God anymore, but his book still sells. And he's like, I don't know, I guess I'll take the royalties, but this is kind of awkward. Do we want to be that way? Or do we lose our soul? See, once you get past the barrier of I'm not willing to hurt, now you move into a world of possibilities, of growth, maturity, and more connection with God. Now, the message of Jesus, certainly a part of it is that God loves you, Jesus died for you, he rose from the dead, and your sins can be forgiven. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's an important part of the gospel. But if you listen to Jesus, an equally important part of the gospel is deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, or you will sacrifice your very soul, the essence of who you are. Now, the devil would agree with the good news that, hey, God loves you and Jesus died for you and rose from the dead. He's fine with that. He would never deny that. But that second part about life is going to hurt and you better be willing and able and have that tenacity to accept hurt and not think that hurt is just telling you that you need to find a way to alleviate the pain, move beyond that, that becomes the whole message. Peter understood it for sure, ultimately. You read First and Second Peter, it's all about suffering and pain. 
It's all about Jesus being the rock, the foundation. But then it's all about, he hurt, we should too. Don't act like if I hurt, there's something wrong. Peter understood that's not the case at all. And for all of us, when we really understand the complete gospel. Now, for in the first century, you know, how would that happy gospel that like, oh, Jesus loves you, he died for you, and, and now you can, you know, have your best life now. How would that work in the first century when accepting Jesus meant it was going to get worse? You were going to probably get killed for what you believe. What kind of an evangelistic altar call would that make if you only told half the truth? Um, the devil doesn't have a problem with that half of the gospel, but he can't afford to have us understand the rest of the story that we need to deny ourselves and take up our cross because that's something that he wasn't able to do. That's something that caused him to actually become the devil was because he couldn't buy in to that part. He had to have a shortcut. And that's true for every one of us. And that's true. The, the real gospel has to include, and this is going to hurt. If it doesn't hurt, you're really not experiencing real life. And some of the best things in life hurt and are painful. But when we understand that and we embrace it, there's a power that comes from moving through that pain. We become actually closer to God when we hurt than when life is like a bowl of ice cream. You learn nothing there. I remember the Barry Maguire used to sing a song that said, I'm, I walked a mile with pleasure. We chatted all the way, leaving me none the wiser with what she had to say. But I walked a mile with sorrow. And never a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And then the stanza ends up with, and blessed are you when you trust what you just don't understand. That's the core of the powerful truth of who we can be in our souls when we become healthily willing to suffer, understanding that that's a part of this life. Oh, the rest of eternity, we're in heaven. We're not going to suffer at all. But this is the veil of tears. This is the place where if you're doing it right, it's going to hurt some. Are we willing? Because that's what Jesus says to his disciples. And that's what I believe that he says to us as well. Today, this weekend, we remember Memorial Day, as Roger shared with us some of the history of Memorial Day. People who were willing to give their life so that other people could have life. It's so incredibly inspiring. When, when it's Memorial Day, I, I always think of time years ago when I took a group of junior high kids from Calvary to Washington, D.C., and we were there for Memorial Day. And one of the things that our, our students had a chance to do is to be at the laying of a wreath for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And we got to pick two junior high boys to go, because, you know, girls can't. But uh, they just happen to be boys. Um, this was a long time ago. But to go lay a wreath on the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And, our, and I still have a picture of it. It's in my mind, but I have a picture too as well that one of the kids that I picked, little Trevor Winnet, he was a seventh grader. And he and another kid were walking with this soldier. And he's carrying the wreath. And... Little Trevor is looking up at this soldier, and I have that picture, and it's like, wow. Years later, Trevor gave his life serving in the military, blown up by an IUD, and it's like, okay, that's what memorial means. That's what this means. And we can't comprehend or understand at the depths of our soul what life is about until we can connect with the fact that this life, the most memorable things that will happen in this life are the things that just rip our guts out. That's what Jesus understood his disciples would come to learn, and they did. And that's what it's so important for us to understand as well. Let's pray. Lord, The truth is, 
the song the devil's playing is just so tempting. It's great for us to think of Christianity as being something that happened to you 2,000 years ago and not to think of it as the pain that we will suffer as humans today and this week and this month and the pain around which we are surrounded with so many examples of horrible, painful things that happen in this life and yet we believe you that somehow in the pain life oozes forth in a powerful way. It's so easy for the devil to present shortcuts for us. But help us to be willing to take the pain, not to choose pain, but to take it when it comes because we're doing the right things and to not be little babies that expect a miracle to bail us out all the time. Or to not compromise and think that the way we're going to fix this world is by taking control of everything. We just need the right candidates or we just need the right laws and procedures and none of that's the deal. We want to represent you well. And when something happens this week that hurts us, we want to be a testimony, not a shortcut. Lord, if there's anybody here today or listening, watching online who has never truly received the full message. Maybe they've even said, yeah, Jesus is God, he died for me, great. But they've never had the courage or the soul to be able to say, and I will embrace discomfort and pain when it comes. And know that, as Peter said, I am sharing in the sufferings of Christ. We appreciate how easy you've made our lives. We appreciate all the blessings that are in our lives, but teach us to appreciate the challenges as well. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.